Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Guardian. The Prime Minister at the moment, both in foreign affairs mode and in domestic mode, is trying to project this sense of consensus. We can, with a little bit of patience and a little bit of effort, reset relationships all around the world, within the Federation, within the region, if people of goodwill can come together. Hello, lovely pod people. Catherine Murphy here, and you're on Australian Politics. As usual, I'm here with this bonus episode to analyse the latest Guardian Essential Poll data. I'm joined by my mate, Pete Lewis, who's Executive Director at Essential Media, and he guides us through the numbers, which just a reminder, you can access if you're listening on at home through Essential Media's website. Go, go away and have a look at the charts. As we work through them, they might make a bit more sense, I guess. Uh, we had a broad-ranging conversation, as is our want. We discussed how Labor or the the new government is beginning to project its values both in a foreign affairs space and also domestically. We also dug right into, because of the nature of the poll questions this fortnight, uh, the response to COVID and the sort of divided headspace, I guess, that Australians are in at the moment. We sort of want the pandemic to be over. But we we also don't want high death rates and it's sort of hard to reconcile all of those competing emotions and instincts, I guess. So this conversation was recorded on Tuesday and it comes from a webinar series which is hosted by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. The webinar series is called Poll Position. These conversations are always moderated by the lovely Ebony Bennett, who's the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. And I'm about to hand you over to Ebony now. So Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has just returned from an international charm offensive to repair a series of international relationships that had gone awry. Uh, he visited Ukraine uh, as part of that trip and now he's come back to uh, Australia where at home we have floods and pestilence, it seems, with many communities in New South Wales recovering from sometimes their third or fourth flood this year. Uh, at the same time, we've got incursions from the enormously destructive Varroa mite in New South Wales beehives and an outbreak of foot and mouth disease that has struck Indonesia that we're trying to prepare our best to avoid. We've also got an October budget coming up, um, part of which uh, will be a wellbeing statement uh, from the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers. He announced that this week, as well as a job summit coming up in early September. Catherine, I'll start with you as always. Uh, as always, a lot happening in Australian <laughs> politics. Um, where, where do we begin this week? Oh, gosh, it's hard to know where to begin, Ed. Um, I think you're right, though. Uh, the Prime Minister's just come home from uh, another big overseas trip that included uh, a NATO meeting in Spain, uh, a diplomatic uh, rapprochement with Macron in Paris, and, uh, as you said, Eb, a trip to the war zone in Ukraine, uh, which was uh, sort of about tending relationships on a range of fronts, uh, and also, uh, you know, embarking on the specific resets that you were talking about. There's some uh, relationships that's that suffered basically in the in the, at the tail end of the Morrison government. And Anthony Albanese is pretty laser focused on resetting a number of those relationships as quickly as possible. Uh, he he is home. 
Uh, he's done various domestic things, including giving a speech to the Sydney Energy Forum in Sydney today, which is all about, uh, you know, sort of uh, building building coalitions, building consensus, building alliances around climate action in the Indo-Pacific. And a major theme of the speech was we know all about climate change in the Indo-Pacific because we live on the front line, going back to Ebb's point, that we've had uh, some communities in Australia now having their third major flood event of this year. Uh, you know, we no longer have to speculate about climate change being something that's off in the in the future. We are, in fact, living through it now. And, uh, and that's the message the Prime Minister's sort of been starting to stitch through his rhetoric ahead of uh, the parliamentary sitting, uh, the, the opening of the, 40, of the 47th Parliament in just a couple of weeks' time. So in between now and then, uh, the Prime Minister will go tomorrow to the Pacific Islands Forum, where, again, climate change will be uh, one of the many issues under discussion by uh, Pacific leaders uh, we've we've still got this amazing sort of um, you know geostrategic competition in the region. So China is sort of a backing vocal to everything that Australia is doing at this point in time, including the trip to the other hemisphere by the Prime Minister. At the same time as uh, the new government sort of try to set up um, its or project its values, shall we say, sort of embark on this round of foreign policy relationship tending through the projection of values and through using the uh, Labor's more ambitious climate change policy as a door opener. That's also important. You know, the government's also trying to reset relations carefully <laughs> with China. We've got diplomatic meetings uh, at ministerial levels starting to reopen, although there are many, many irritants in that relationship and I don't think any of us should be holding our breath about, you know, how quickly that relationship can be reset. But anyway, so China's in the background of the PIF. And then in terms of the whole climate message, which I've sort of been focusing on in the summary of the last couple of weeks, that's important looking into the opening of the 47th Parliament because Chris Bowen will bring forward legislation in the opening uh, couple of weeks of the new Parliament, one piece of legislation giving effect to Labor's 43% emissions reduction target by, 20, by 2030 and another uh, adjustment to legislation, which is part of measures to try and bring down the sticker price of electric vehicles, which is the beginning of an, of an EV or a transport emissions reduction strategy. So we've sort of got all these interesting pieces on our, on our chessboard eh? uh, that are sort of all kind of moving moving around to sort of reset the debate in Australia on, on a couple of key questions. And uh, the Prime Minister at the moment, both in foreign affairs mode and in domestic mode, is trying to project this sense of consensus, this, this sense that we can rebuild things, we can treat issues seriously if there is collaboration and cooperation. And I think one of the interesting things really uh, about the Prime Minister in domestic mode over the last week or so is the amount of appearances he's done with the New South Wales Premier Don Perrottet. Obviously, there's been a major event in New South Wales, a major flooding event, uh, but also I think by that frequent appearance of the two leaders together trying to speak sort of more or less on the same song sheet, that is a sort of visual and oral projection of what Anthony Albanese wants to sort of put in the minds of voters at, at the moment, that that. We can, with a little bit of patience and a little bit of effort, reset relationships all around the world, within the Federation, within the region, if people of goodwill can come together and try and mo progress some modest changes. So anyway, that's the setup, I guess, for, uh, for, for what, you know, what we'll talk about in the poll. Such an interesting observation about Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales as well, because I felt like he also went out of his way to reset that relationship exactly. and yeah. defend Anthony Albanese from some of that rubbish criticism about travelling overseas as if any 
coalition prime minister would refuse an invitation to a NATO summit. But I just thought it was also really interesting, um, Catherine, to see climate change essentially, as you said, be Australia's entry ticket to a whole range of international fora uh, where we used to be, you know, a pariah petrostate with Saudi Arabia and Russia and the like. Now it's kind of, you know, here's our way to mend the fence. Please let us back in. We take this this seriously. It seemed certainly seemed to work in a, in a lot of spaces. Yeah, in a lot of spaces it has. It'll be interesting to watch the Pacific Island Forum over the next couple of days. Obviously, traditionally, Pacific countries have wanted Australia not only just to turn up with something that isn't laughable, but actually have very ambitious uh, commitments like, you know, phasing out coal and, and gas and all of that sort of stuff. So far, um, that's kind of been on the periphery of the PIF discussions. And uh, as Penny Wong said in a press conference this morning, <laughs> well, she didn't express surprise, but she said she was asked a direct question, has this come up yet? You know, has the Pacific's more ambitious attitude to, towards climate action come up yet? And she said, well, actually bilaterally no, um, because everybody at the moment is so relieved that somebody is actually proposing to do something that that we're sort of starting from that 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 sort of basic proposition of goodwill. But I, it wouldn't be a piff, I don't think, if uh, if we didn't see some sort of more sharply focused difference in ambition, I think, between Pacific Island states and Australia, notwithstanding the fact that we have a more ambitious climate policy now under this government. So anyway, yeah. could could get interesting over the next sort of 24 hours or so. Yeah, Pete, the other big, uh, I guess, thing that's happening across Australia is the massive increase in COVID cases and COVID deaths. Uh, and I know that we you go into that in this week's um, essential poll. Uh, I'm not sure about Sydney where you are, but in Canberra it certainly seems like people are dropping like flies to either flu or COVID uh, in workplaces around the place. Do you want to take us through the first couple of, of slides? I'm just coming off the back of it. So I've joined the exclusive club that people are joining in droves at the moment. And um, apologies for not being around a fortnight ago, but that was my ailment. I was also out while while we tipped over that 10,000 mark, which is one of the, I don't know if that does sort of helped inform the questions I, I put in the field this week or not, but I thought it was a good time to take stock of where we've been with COVID. So the first couple of slides, though, are really, you know, barometers of national mood, um, both towards the general direction of Australia and um, our new leader. Um, why do we even bother polling outside an election cycle? Um, well, I think over the last three years, creating some baselines of um, of national consensus around sort of non-voting issues has been really useful. Um, Catherine and I started anchoring our discussions around approval of government's handling of the pandemic at the start of the pandemic, and it created a really compelling series over time. Um, I'm not saying direction of Australia is necessarily the baseline, but it does show there was not an overwhelming, but a significant uptick after the election in the number of people that thought we were starting to head along the right direction. And bear in mind, this isn't a political facing question. And so we've got these numbers in the context of war, um, flood and pestilence. So um, it is fair to say that the new government has shifted the mood positively after the election. I'm sure you guys spoke about this last time, but there was a 40% or a 40 point improvement in Arbo's net positive. So nothing like a winner, right? Um, so we went from we went from basically being line ball positive negative to God, how good is this guy? Um, so there's been a little bit of a drop-off. I think Catherine did the sums better than I. We've dropped four points in approval and increased six points in disapproval. So that's a double digit shift on one telling of history that could be the world's shortest ever honeymoon, although I think it's just a bit of a correction. And I guess the the real the real issue will be how that stabilizes over the next six to 12 months. People with memories will realize that um, the first year of the Kevin Rudd government was 70% approvals and everything was everything was hunky-dory. And it just what what you see is that 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 speaks to the political capital that a new leader brings into 
the job, part of the trick of holding on to power is maintaining that capital and drawing it down um, in slow increments rather than dropping it all at once. And, you know, I think in terms of a lot of the um, the decision-making and the way that the government is approaching their business, I do think that there is a recognition that the capital is is gold and you've got to hold on to it for as long as you can. Hold on to it or spend it, Catherine, uh, the eternal <laughs> question. Oh, exactly, exactly. That is the eternal question. But as I said uh, in the intro, we've got the Job Summit coming up. The Prime Minister's been at various uh announcements um, of whether that's additional, you know, flood assistance in in New South Wales or elsewhere. He's certainly been uh, extremely busy. Uh, Are you reading this kind of drop as just, you know, that blip of kind of returning to to normal after that big jump after the election? Yeah, well, obviously, with in all things, uh, you know, the trend is our friend. Uh, this is this we need to we need to look at how this kind of shakes out over over a period of time, not over just you know two polls. But I think that it's sort of interesting, Pete, uh, that uh, you know, sort of drawing that Rudd comparison and and Rudd's sort of near stratospheric approval ratings certainly over the first uh, 12 months of his prime ministership. I, I do think it's sort of a bit different this time. Um, I, I clearly remember when the government changed in 2007, and this was, of course, before the global financial crisis, which was the event that reset global politics, you know, from uh, a sort of a, a period of, you know, <laughs> we're all going to be fine to a period of, uh, you know, of, of sort of, real populism in politics, you know, we, we had Brexit as a consequence of it, we had the rise of Donald Trump as a consequence of it, um, you know, the, the GFC really reset politics everywhere, um, all around the world, even in Australia, even though we avoided the recession, there, there's, there's also been a reset here. And so it's sort of like, you know, I remember that hope that accompanied the uh, election of Kevin Rudd and that that capital that he maintained over the first 12 months. It's sort of like, I don't know, it feels like, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think of the right analogy, it sort of feels like a more innocent time. Than I, I also think there was a sense that he, uh, and stay with me this, I reckon he burnt a lot of capital to maintain his capital. Like, Everything was fast um, for gratification to keep things up. I, I remember particularly the whole heroic takeover of the health system was going to be Kevin saving us all. And so in a way, there was really high approval because the surface looked great, but there wasn't a strong superstructure underneath it. So yeah, well, I don't know if we can think about an economic analogy for that in terms of maintaining your capital, but it just feels like... You don't keep it there for the sake of it. You've got to use it. But, you know, the the one that I'm still struggling to think through has been the negotiations with the the crossbenchers on staff and whether that's been worth an expenditure of capital. But also for months of time, I'm not sort of saying that glibly. I mean, it's just like we we don't have much evidence Mm. here. It's Mm. he's still, you know, in terms of his approval, he's still well and truly in positive territory. Mm. There's been a correction, right? Yeah. So, but but there was a point to my rambling about Kevin Rudd because there was sort of that 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 hope that happened after after two thousand and seven. What I detect as I go about my life talking to people, um, you know, in the wake of the election, is that there's a different sentiment out there. It's relief, which is different to hope, and all and people will sort of view a leader through a different prism. You know, hope is one thing, relief is another, right? And, and, you know, we're sort of getting into ins and outs of the cats, you know what, but I do think there's a difference there. Mm, And in terms of this whole thing, well, you know, how do you use your capital? Yeah, for sure, right? I think very interestingly we've seen in the opening two months of the new Labor government a number of things decided early, very early, you know, the return of the Bilo family, for example, the decision to drop the prosecution of Bernard Kaliri, for example, uh, you know, decisions like that, that, uh, you know, would be much more contested and invoke much more clamour if they were made in the midterm of a government, have been made very mm. early in the term of this government, right? Um, and now we're sort of, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, the new government's come in, 
it, it's had a look at a bunch of things that it's needed to transact in its own in its own calculation and estimation. It's looked at a bunch of things it needs to transact almost immediately, right? And we've been ticking those. Um, you know, went through all of them in the preamble in terms of you know resetting mm. global affairs, resetting the region, getting the climate message out there, doing these things that that progressive people will absolutely love, but uh, but middle Australia may love them less right? So get all that out the door. Then we're going to be heading into this period of, you know, of government as attrition, because that's what government is now, right? So this is, so now the Prime Minister is trying to sort of move into this period of consensus, sort of dialing down the clamour, dialing down the contention, looking for, looking for common ground, because I think the Prime Minister, I mean, I, I do think that's Anthony Albanese's instincts as, as, a, as a politician. I don't, I don't think this is all just calculation. I think that's how it, genuinely how this guy rolls. But also I think it's a bit of a different phase. Do you remember when Tony Abbott came in and he said he wanted to get politics off the front page, right? Well, Morrison said the same thing. Well, they, they want to be, disagree. They all want to do they it. They all want to do it. <coughs> now, can they I take your thing it. a little bit further? I reckon to quote our great friends at Honest Government Ads, they've actually got rid of some of the errant shit fuckery of the government and got it, like, you know, dropping the prosecution against Kaliri getting the family back to Bulia. And, and it just strikes me um, there in terms of that relief, the best feeling in the world when you've been sick is not being sick at all. And like it's that the relief is actually about just going back to a normal where you're not feeling totally rubbish. And I wonder if this is the political equivalent of that. We've had yeah. this pretty toxic government really for nine years with a bit of like I'll give Malcolm some credit he couldn't didn't really run the show but the Abbott and Morrisons were pretty toxic regimes and so just the lifting of that means that your baseline you don't need a lot of hope it's just like it's just not crap anymore (laughs) in terms of the timing Catherine like all those um, decisions that could essentially I guess you could see them almost in the context of cleaning up at least, um, you know, some of those hangovers from the previous administration. In terms of the timing, as you said, being much more difficult later, it seems very politically smart to get those out of the way in this honeymoon period before any of those other things, you know, that might drag a government down later on have taken hold. So, yeah, certainly interesting to look at the timing from that perspective. We'll come back now to the slides and to the next one on COVID deaths. So this kind of speaks to what I think is going to be the main complication of this government. So they're not doing the toxic things the previous government, but the challenge they've got is we are living through a once in a century pandemic and it ain't over as I learned the other week. And I threw a number of questions in the field and largely they were replicating questions we've asked previously because if you take your mind back a year and two years, the pandemic was all we were talking about. We all became experts in um, whether AstraZeneca was okay and, you know, the, the gaps between vaccines and the quarantine infrastructure that Australia needed and we were heavily, heavily focused because our lives had been disrupted by the risk of system failure. And now we're at this point where what seemed incomprehensible 12 months ago is kind of business as usual. And nowhere is this more in your face than when we ask people what their tolerance for death through the pandemic would be. In August 21, 61% of people said they would not countenance less anything over 100 deaths a year. And the number that thought that more than 5,000 deaths a year was acceptable was 3%. Um, guess what? We've had about 8,500 deaths since Christmas. So this year alone, and the first, basically the first half of this year, the death rate in Australia has been beyond the extremes of tolerance as articulated by the public in August 21. And even when we ask it now, in July 22, only 10% would accept what I would call a reality-based consequence of the global pandemic. Now, what does that mean? I think it's, it's not just about 
people will say one thing but accept something else. I do feel we're living in this dreamlike state at the moment. And um, I've done a piece in The Guardian today through my own COVID fug where I think we, we vacillate between the dream state of the fantasy of back to normal and the nightmare of lockdowns going into the future, whereas the reality is sitting in the middle that we've got to wake up from the dream and actually look at the challenges the pandemic's put before us. And I still think, I'm not blaming the new government at this, but I still think so much of our discourse has almost, you know, sugarcoated the reality that we are in the middle of this once-in-a-century pandemic out of the equation. So we have discussions about budget and the, the tolerance of our deficit to deal with New Start, or we talk about um, get it, reopening our labour market as if there's no consequence in terms of national borders in new variants coming in. We don't really seem to be talking about public health orders the way we were in the past, Everyone's kind of over it and sick of it, but the reality is it's going to define our politics for not just the next year, but I think decade, the next decade. And I don't know the answer. I'm just saying, look, this is really interesting, the gap between what people say they'll tolerate and what they'll actually tolerate. It's I do wonder it. if, yes. yeah, Pete's got a point there that the way it's going to express itself is really in people can't access selective surgery because hospitals are overrun again. You know, those workforce issues that we've seen in the care sector, as Pete said, supply issues, it kind of feels like dealing with COVID has moved really out of the realm of um, the emergency phase and its little proxy debates and affecting other issues and elements within the the national debate what do you reckon oh definitely i mean look the two things are the two things that are really defining um as in things outside the new government's control but nonetheless will define this term is covid uh, and you know the, the the prolonged pandemic that we that we are still in and also uh cost of living inflation uh rising interest rates there are massive challenges. Like it's sort of one thing for us to talk about Anthony Albanese's aspiration for consensus building, and then you've got to overlay that with events, right? Um, there are there are genuinely, you know, people people in policy sort of walk circles talk about about wicked problems, right? Well, there's no there's no shortage of wicked problems that the government's kind of got to nut its way through. And in terms of the, you know, if we keep going on the slides or as we do, yeah, there is that point that Pete was sort of trying to explicate there. I think of, um, you know, we're, we're in a we're in a different headspace about it, but not consistently so, right? Like we're less worried about deaths than we used to be, but we'd still prefer that, um, you know, that mask wearing happened. We'd still prefer that, you know, fourth booster shots happened. Uh, we, you know, there's sort of still that kind of over, overhang of public health that there's support for in the community, but there's also support at around about the same level for treating COVID as a cold, right? So this is particularly difficult issue to manage because it's we, we people, humans, because we're complicated, we've internalised different sentiments about this mm. thing. We want it to be over. We want it to be nothing, but we understand it is something, but we hope it's not really terribly something. And, and we don't want people to die, but we're not prepared to do what exactly. it will take for them not to die. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting in these findings, Catherine, and this slide in particular was, you remember last, in, in the depths of the pandemic, it was like huge consensus on issues, whereas there's just like this 25 to 35% now of don't knows yeah. on pretty basic propositions yeah. um yeah. so you know we've got majority support for a fourth booster but only just yeah, um yeah masks yeah i um you know and then that the same people who say they won't tolerate deaths a majority of them say we just need to get on as if it's another form of flu <laughs> i guess people die from the flu as well but it's like we're all muddled headed yeah, which well, is yeah. kind of how i felt coming out of covid anyway <laughs> so you know maybe it's the well i wonder too <laughs> That cognitive dissonance that we saw, you know, we looked on in horror um, at the United States and the huge number of deaths that they had there and how can they tolerate that? 
but here it's beyond the limits of tolerance for what people say they will accept and yet it doesn't appear. Yeah, well, it's happening anyway. Exactly, the huge issue that you would expect. Um, We're going to go very shortly uh, to questions from the audience. Thank you so much. I can see a bunch in here. Catherine, the first one for you is from Linda Tulberg. Um, she's asking, will the integrity push extend to restructuring the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal? We have spoken about this in the past, and I believe a review has been announced based on, uh, in part, some of the concerns that the Australia Institute raised with cronyism in political appointments there. Um, but uh, are we seeing, I guess, there's a really big push that goes beyond an ICAC for other measures to ensure integrity, Catherine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think integrity is a big, is a, you know, sort of is part of the plan, part of the government's plan in the sense of um, sort of uh, it, it, it's a kind of adjunct to uh, we, we've got stuff in common, we can collaborate, we can uh, refresh faith in institutions on on a range of fronts, right? I think it's sort of part of the part of the the, the sort of tool bag, uh, both rhetorically and practically. In terms of the AAT, yes. Well, look, the, the Labor was obviously very critical about the number of um, appointments uh, to the AAT of of basically coalition fellow travellers, really, and people who didn't necessarily have law degrees, but you know. Why would you need one of those? Uh, post-election, we've had a report. Uh, I think it was a well, it must have been Senate report because of Kim Carr. Kim Carr, uh, an outgoing Labor senator, sort of threw a bit of a, a, a bomb into the mix by saying, "Well, let's just get rid of the thing. Let's just abolish it and uh, and do something else." There would be all kinds of practical implications from that. Yeah, I don't know whether or not the government would then have to pay out the contracts of everybody that was appointed for five-year terms. There would be there'd be all kinds of um, you know of, of practical things that would have to be worked through. And I think the attorney general is sort of signalling more in the reform space than in the blow it up space. But again, we're not really sure what's happening apart from the fact that obviously. Labor has had a view that the appointments to this body have been unbalanced for quite a long period of time. They do want to correct that in some shape or form. Uh, I'm sure there are, there are there would be ways of correcting that, but there's sort of nuclear ways of correcting that, and then there's incremental ways of 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 uh, correcting that. And I don't think we have enough information just at the moment to make an informed judgment about whether it's nuclear or incremental. But um, as you said, huge issues there with, yeah, the appointment of uh, political appointees um, really escalated in the last years of the Morrison government. It was up to, I think, 40% at one point were political appointments. Um, And uh, for people unfamiliar, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal is essentially where you go if you've got some kind of beef with the government that you haven't been able to resolve, whether that's with your NDIS payments or, you know, anything else, if it's uh, a government decision that you need to be reviewed, it's kind of your final last point. Um, so it, it is very important for a lot of people um, to get to seek justice and, and redress if they feel a, a poor decision has been made. Uh, the next question that I've got is around um, emissions reductions targets. Trevor Blaney says, can the panel make a comment on the various targets afoot, Labor, the Independents and Greens, uh, they're not interested in the LMP's target. Uh, and the question goes to pragmatism and whether the Greens and Independents are likely to provide support for the Labor target in the Senate. Catherine, this is going to be almost first up in the the first sitting of Parliament. Yeah, well and truly first up in the first sitting of Parliament. Uh, and uh, and it's a look. My gut tells me that uh, that pragmatism will probably be where we end up. But uh, but I think we've got a way to go uh, before we can be confident about that. Uh, just in terms of addressing the the question, uh, just sort of you know, uh, just explaining to people who haven't followed this. Obviously, the new Labor government has an, a 2030 emissions reduction target of 43%. Uh, that is the target that they are proposing to legislate in the parliament. Uh, I think they don't absolutely need legislation 
in order to do it, uh, but they want to legislate it basically to sort of set a framework to, you know, to sort of, you know, send send that signal that that's, that's where we're going. As the questioner implied, obviously there are, there's a range of targets amongst representatives in the parliament at the moment. There's the coalition, despite losing, you know, I don't know, uh, 10 seats uh, to climate change as cl- with climate being a major focus in them, Peter Dutton has said, no, no, we're not going to support the legislation of of 43%. And, Catherine, just while we're on that, because I think that's really interesting, Uh, if you look at past uh, elections where the coalition got up, there was a huge pressure on Labor to pass tax cuts and other things because of the mandate of the new government and the people have spoken and they endorsed, you know, no action on climate or tax cuts or whatever, Correct me if I'm wrong, but there hasn't really been a huge amount even of internal pressure on Peter Dutton to change that. It's just kind of... There has been some pressure, Ed, but I think part of the reason why there hasn't been more pressure is that a great big hunk of the moderate wing was actually routed. (laughs) Yeah, we're not there anymore to make the argument. No, no, no. I think look, I think there is pressure in the opposition on two fronts. One that Dutton has, has basically decreed this as a captain's call, so there was no actual substantive discussion before yeah. Dutton resolved that would be the position. So some people are uh, are unhappy about it on those grounds. Uh, there are certainly people around who and who have signalled, you know, Andrew Bragg, Bridget Archer some others, right, that, oh, well, you know, if we like the cut of Labor's jib in terms of this legislation, we may actually cross the floor and support it. We'll see how that pans out once the, the legislation hits Parliament, although, I mean, you know, the, the there has been a catastrophic blow, obviously, to the moderate wing of the Liberal Party. In terms of Dutton's stated position, the Liberal and National Parties are against it. The Greens and independents in the Parliament want a higher uh, medium-term emissions reduction target than Labor's 43%. I think Anthony Albanese is entirely comfortable about, I mean, look, I think he would prefer it be otherwise, to be clear. I think he would prefer to put his 43% in the parliament and have the parliament pass it, right, and then work through some alternatives that might sit around that 43% that keep driving ambition, right? I think that's where the government's substantive headspace is at. But at a political level, I don't think Anthony Albanese minds having a vote uh, on a 43% emissions reduction target where the Liberals and the Greens sit on the other side of the chamber and oppose it. I yeah, don't I've, I've got numbers from a few weeks ago that. on this as well that said, on balance, the population supporting to lock in the 43 rather than open up a new fight on targets. I think that's the view that Pocock's articulated as well over recent weeks, like let's just lock it in and move forward because it's not just a debate about the perfect, it's also a debate about the good and just starting to move is really important. I think the other point to make about Labor's approach is because they're building their broader climate agenda from the ground up. The target is not the point. The point is more what are you going to do to to start the transition and that's where the the rewiring Australia is a really important initiative, which is really, you know, an engineering challenge rather than anything else. The next question I've got from Alan Colagado, who says, given the federal budget is in dire straits, is there any wiggle room for rethinking the planned income tax cuts? Catherine, I might flick that one to you first. Dire straits might be a little bit uh, unfair, but certainly rising inflation, cost of living, a a very big amount of debt compared to what it it has historically been, uh, and a job summit coming up. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of this webinar that Jim Chalmers has announced is going to be a wellbeing statement, I think he said, um, as part of the budget papers in October. That's something he's been talking about for a long time, this idea that GDP figures and, you know, debt figures are not the only thing that matter in a budget. And actually we need to be better at measuring what matters, what counts to people, um, whether that's health indicators or other social wellbeing indicators or New Zealand, I think, has a model that takes into account natural capital. Um, Can you just talk to us about what we're expecting, um, Catherine, from the budget based on what Labor's talked about so far? 
Sure. And look, the, the point of the question is why are we why is the government implementing tax cuts that you know wealthy people don't need and the budget can't afford? Um, and that were legislated well before we had a global pandemic. <laughs> Exactly. There's the eternal why right there. Um, obviously, uh, you know, these tax cuts shouldn't shouldn't proceed. But uh, the, if, if these tax cuts don't proceed, then Labor's broken an election promise and everybody who, you know, is slated to get a tax cut doesn't get it. Uh, so uh, from a political perspective, uh, the new government is really jammed on that. I did, uh, in a recent podcast with Jim Chalmers, ask him, you know, whether or not he intended to still deliver these tax cuts in light of circumstances, and he, you know, he basically says, "Well, well, yes. I mean, that's what we said we'd do. We have to, we have to go on and do it." That seems ridiculous. Well, it's it, it is ridiculous, uh, <laughs> quite frankly. Uh, but uh, you know, but also. Nothing harms a government more than breaking election promises. So, uh, so there's two sort of there's two things that have got to be weighed up there. But in, in general, but the other one I can't still wrap my head around it. Be, be, <laughs> as somebody who just filled up their small car the other day and paid a hundred bucks uh, to fill up her small car, the as uh, the fuel excise holiday is going to end in September. I think politically that's an incredibly hard decision for the government to make, even though. Uh, that's been well telegraphed. But, you know, to the broader sort of budget questions, uh, you're absolutely right. I think there's sort of some interesting trends going on with budgeting per se with this new government. One is the sort of wellbeing index, which does contextualise budgets in a broader perspective. The other is Katie Gallagher is going to work up sort of, um, you know, budgeting uh, with, a, with, a, with a gender lens as well, like serious systemic budgeting with a gender lens. Now, I don't think they can turn that around entirely by October. I think that's, that's too soon. And sadly, the capacity for that in the public service has been well and truly watered down but that's as well as the wellbeing index, the, the, the sort of, um, you know, gender-specific budgeting analysis I think is actually really important and so yeah. I think they, they're going to try and basically bring that up to speed between the October statement and the May statement. So um, look I mean obviously you know generally I'm just speaking very generally here inflation improves budgets you know the, the budget is likely to be less dire in air quotes um, than it than perhaps it it might have been uh, and perhaps that gives the government a little bit of room to move, but they're not acting at the moment like a government with a lot of room to move. Yeah, uh, and there's there's the difficulty that uh, that you know there's a there's a proportion of people in the community that will have voted Labor or voted Independent in this election because they just literally couldn't stand this, the the sight of Scott Morrison anymore. Um, you know, Labor doesn't want to send those people hurtling back to the coalition either. So. You know, there's a bunch of you know, there's a bunch of calculations to be made over the next few months. Substantive, political, national interest, dare we say, lots and lots of calculations there. But this kind yeah. of goes back to my comment on the dreamlike nature of our political discourse at the moment. Like, how can you even discuss the budget when it's been blown up to such an extent that you know, it's it's <laughs> it's it's not even a thing that can be contemplated. The size of the, the the deficit. So I think part of the strategy of broadening out your criteria for what a good economy looks like is just actually moving beyond that number that you can't conquer and start saying, well, what good can we do, which is where the sort of ideas around building in wellbeing measures probably make sense. Now, yeah. um, should the government you know, walk away from the tax cuts for high incomes. Like I, I, I think there is a scenario where if you decided that was going to be a hill to die on, you could build a consensus to defend that decision. But I think it is still just a drop in the ocean in terms of the bigger budget challenge that is it worth that effort. Not sure I'd characterise them as a drop in the ocean at $180 billion kind of a calculation for the cost of them. Um, also, if Katie Gallagher were to run the uh, gender lens over the tax cuts, um, I think they go about two to one to blokes compared to compared to women. Um, but, yeah, the wellbeing budget, as I said, uh, 
an idea that Jim Chalmers has raised uh, before. And if anyone is interested uh, in our webinar yesterday where we talked to Nobel laureate economist Joseph Stiglitz, that's an idea that he has championed in the past and wrote a book about, he talked a little bit about that. You can find that on our YouTube channel. Um, we've got here um, a couple of other questions to get through. Um, a couple here Catherine, on the difference between, I guess, the divergence between managing COVID from a political level compared to, you know, the cases going through the roof and those impacts that we were talking about that people are, um, you know, very much beginning to notice. Do you think that's going to be resolved anytime soon, Catherine? The, the problem is that it is a bit hard to resolve it. You know, look, obviously, you know, we could we could stop uh, we could stop the sort of you know absolute exponential uh, rate of case numbers by imposing lockdowns again. We could we could do that, but I think the appetite for uh, state governments to do that and and the Commonwealth uh, you know carrying the big fiscal support associated with that is not where it was twelve months ago. So now we're sort of into pandemic to endemic and and management of these issues i think some things that don't make a lot of sense to me and that sort of it, it kind of ties back into the the last question about budgets right and priorities um you know like the government's winding down telehealth support for example um i think uh, i think the sort of period of free rats such as it's been is also coming to an end there are sort of uh, expenditures that have that have sort of been or outlays during the pandemic that have been trying to sort of um, manage exponential caseloads without resorting to the the really sort of full on lockdowns, right? And for budgetary reasons, some of those things appear to be being wound back. Now that's really not consistent with sort of exponential growth in caseloads. So I think look, the government, you know, it's. <laughs> They're going to have to do something quite difficult, which is um, sort of stand still in the middle of a maelstrom and work through some priorities, right? Um, and that's quite difficult at the moment because, you know, they've been elected, they've come in, here's the transition, boom, 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 here's our immediate things, um, you know, they, they've they've definitely said COVID, we need to reboot a strategy here. We need to work out what we're doing and, and reboot the whole approach. And, and that's sort of that thinking continues. But it's sort of like, you know, some of the, yeah, I think they're going to have to think a bit more broadly. Catherine, I just want to exercise my discretion as host and ask a personal uh, question that I'm interested in around the debate around the Murujuga, um rock art and the uh, project development for of a gas hub there that's really put that at threat for a number of years already but looking to extend and expand there. Um, one of a number of fossil fuel projects that are slated that are, you know, really directly in conflict with the government's stated climate aims. But I think overlaying that is obviously this issue of 65,000 years of Australian heritage. We would look at it very differently, I think, if it was the Opera House um, that was going to, you know, have acid rain and yeah, all sorts of things against it. Um, how important are these um, types of battles where we see traditional owners and really the heritage of Australia coming into play as much as we see the environmental impacts and climate impacts. Hmm. Well, it's what's well, important part of the piece, isn't it? I mean, we talk a lot about the climate impacts of these developments and, and correctly so, um, And uh, but also, um, you know, heritage is incredibly important, obviously, and preserving as much of that as possible is you know, something that any decent country should be in the business of doing. It's a question that sort of sets my mind in this direction a bit, Ed. Uh, I think it actually will be really interesting to see how Tanya Plibersek, how assertive she is in uh, in her portfolio, because obviously she's been given, um, you know, some of the, well, responsibility for the environment, right? She's obviously a very high-profile Labor person. She holds a progressive inner-city seat 
we've had a period, obviously, where there's been a lot of concern amongst civil society that, uh, you know, we've had people occupying space in that portfolio rather than really trying to push protections forward. Um, look, I don't know how Tanya Plibersek will play uh, her time in the portfolio, but I, I know her well enough to say she's a serious, thoughtful and considered person. Um, so I just think that's one of the dynamics about the new government that might be really potentially interesting uh, because there are these, um, obviously, you know, there, there, is, there is a desire from the Prime Minister down to, uh, to really genuinely turn a corner here about managing existential risks, be they climate change or environmentally related, and then there's the overlay of our, our heritage which again, I think is actually really meaningful to this Prime Minister. I think he's, I think some sort of, um, you know, advancing the sort of recognition and reconciliation agenda is actually really important to this guy, the Prime Minister, as an individual, and he's giving the voice a lot of attention too. So there's sort of a, it, 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 you know, can you see what I'm saying? There's, there's a number of different moving parts there that are, um, you know, some of them are some of them some of them are in sync. Some of them contradict each other, um, and then you've got some really interesting personalities too, who have had the opportunity to return to government after a long period in opposition. And then it's like, what do you do with that time? Well, how do you make that time meaningful? And how does that sit with the broader objectives of the government? So it's a bit of a woolly response, but I don't mean it to be woolly. I'm just saying watch that space. Yeah, um, and I will say for anyone who hasn't heard of Murujuga and the Burrup Peninsula, sometimes um, it's known as uh, the Dampier Archipelago, I would encourage you just to look it up. Um, it should be as well known as the Sydney Opera House uh, or any other number of important items of cultural heritage. Uh, it is a, an amazing collection. The biggest outdoor rock gallery in the world, sometimes it's called. It dates back to uh, before the last ice age when Tasmania was connected to the mainland. Do check it out and, and look at what's at stake there. I, I thoroughly recommend knowing a little bit more about it. It's fabulous. Well, that's it for today. Thank you uh, to all of you for listening, tuning in for uh, the, the audio version of our live show, Pole Position, hosted by the Australia Institute. A reminder, again, I said it at the top, but just a reminder, if the if we seem to be going off in you know periods of double dutch during these conversations, do pull up the Essential Media website and you'll find the slides of the latest opinion poll there and you can play along at home. This episode was produced by Miles Hurst and Miles Martignoni, the two Mileses, is uh, this show's executive producer. Uh, we'll be back on Saturday with a new episode. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.